flying at the rig at about 50 feet and doing a, at an appropriate time a zoom climb up the top, a cyclic climb up the top to come to hover over the heli deck at about 30 feet, the SAS would then fast rope. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Wherever in the world you're listening from, salutations, greetings, and a big welcome back to the show where we have a chance to learn together a bit more about the industry and hopefully become better helicopter pilots, crewmen, and operators along the way. It's that time of year again for me where most of my annual currencies are falling due. This week on Monday I had my flight review and standardization check, and today I was supposed to be doing my instructor rating renewal, but it's been cancelled due to unforeseen circumstances, so I'll need to keep plugging away at that one it runs out at the end of December. How do you work it? Do you bunch all your checks together or do you stagger them out over the year? I'd love to know. We'll be into school holidays here in Australia before we know it so my little people will be around the house and we're heading on a cruise to New Zealand in January though so if you're a listener in NZ you'll have to let me know where you operate from and I'll see if we're going to be anywhere close by. I've been working hard at growing my mo for November. It's getting to that length now where I've got to keep wiping gravy off it and uh, looking a little bit silly. Still, it's been a bit of fun and a definitely a good conversation starter. I'll post some pictures on the show Facebook page tomorrow at uh, facebook.com forward slash rotary wing show uh, so that you can have a, a laugh. I'll include a link there to the fundraising page if you do want to contribute. The money raised goes towards men's health research and programs. And if you've been doing Movember too, post your Mo and helicopter photos on the Facebook page or email them through and include your sponsor link and I'll promote it for you. I've taken on board some feedback from a few listeners and have a possible option that might help me get a few more episodes out the door more regularly for you. And I'll talk about that after today's interview. In this episode, we are back in the Southern Hemisphere and we are joined by Mr. Ken Vogt. Ken started his helicopter career with the Australian Navy, spent time in Vietnam, instructed in the military, and had a career in the EMS world. He was one of the senior pilots during a counterterrorism readiness operation to oil rigs in Bass Strait. He survived a live fire SAS killhouse training run where he played the role of a hostage. He has also flown off Australia's last aircraft carrier. I was put in touch with Ken by Craig Bowman. Bowie is flying an EMS bird in Western Australia, which is possibly the largest EMS coverage area in the world in terms of square kilometres, and that might be a story for another time. In researching this interview, I also got in touch with one of the volunteers at the Fleet Air Arm Association of Australia who knew Ken. He indicated that Ken is not known for being reticent and sharing memories. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I've cut it into two episodes for length. So this is part one that you're about to hear. I'll start off by asking Ken about a routine at an air show in 1973 that he used to perform. Well, uh, in those days, uh, there was a travelling cocktail party 
that uh, combined all the Air Force aircraft, uh, fighters, bombers, transports, helicopters, and we moved around the East Coast um, from um, places like Ambly, through Richmond, through um, Sale, Point Cook area, and across to uh, Edinburgh. Uh, the helicopters didn't go to the west to Pierce because of the transit time, but uh, it uh, in those days the air shows were big, and there were three or four in in the one sort of uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and so um, we got to know each other quite well, the air crews, and I'd spent quite a bit of time with the Air Force at this time, and it was an enjoyable occasion. Uh, social life was good, the flying was good. Um, with us was the Army Parachute Demonstration Team, um, and they uh, always, as usual thing, we had a, uh, a brief before each day's activities, and it was pointed out what each... Um, what each type of aircraft would be doing, the uh, time slots and unusual things that may happen. And one of these unusual things, the usual, and it happens with helicopters all around the world, uh, either grandmother takes over and starts to fly it or someone runs out of the crowd and hijacks the helicopter. Well, in this case, it was someone running out of the crowd and, uh, and um, hijacking the helicopter. And the guy doing it was, uh, in fact, my student at the time. He was a reasonably big bloke, six foot or so, and he was dressed in jeans and T-shirt. And I'd completed my exercise commentary, went, I'd landed. Next minute, he uh, bolts under the boundary and runs the sort of 50, 60 yards to the helicopter. Um, the army blokes uh, decided that uh, this bloke was indeed a threat. Uh, so they chased him, <laughs> knocked him to the ground. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, uh, his reception was not pleasant. Lucky for the guy, he managed to get up and dive into the back of the helicopter door, which was open, had a crewman in there, and all, I could see what was happening. So the crewman slammed the door shut, and I got airborne, because I could see this uh, developing into a, a bit of a mess where the, the, the Army guys tried to get into the back of the helicopter and haul him out. So I pulled pitch and got airborne. Um, it was all over. As far as the crowd was concerned, that was all part of the show. Unfortunately, it wasn't part of the show. Uh, afterwards, uh, I think I was a lieutenant commander, maybe not, maybe a lieutenant, not sure. But I know I was a lieutenant. I had to be restrained by my flight commander as a squadron leader because I was going to give a serious briefing to the lieutenant colonel in charge of the whole show uh, because clearly they sat there and didn't listen to any of the previous couple of briefs we'd had because this was well and truly briefed because we didn't want something like this happening. So the deal was this guy will run out, he will be dressed in jeans and a blue T-shirt, uh, let him go. Well, that didn't happen. Um, he was a bit sore when he got out, but uh, he bore no grudge to the Army, but uh, I was a bit annoyed because it was clear they hadn't listened they would have been pretty enthusiastic, I'm imagining. Uh, they were very enthusiastic, yes. Uh, the fact that uh, the guy, the bloke hopping the helicopter was, you know, a solid bloke, young fit fellow. In fact, I think he was Air Force Academy, actually. Um, so he'd been around uh, a bit, and uh, he wasn't small. But he managed to break free, jump in the helicopter, and I'd seen what had happened, so... Um, he scrambled in, and before he had a chance to buckle up, I just uh, the crewman slammed the door shut. I pulled pitch, and we got away. <laughs> there you go. I don't think I've seen one of those routines for ages. I remember one. I was probably at school at, at Coolangatta, and the the setup there was uh, someone had just walked out from the uh, the VIP tent where he had a, had a few drinks, 
and uh, jumped in the in the helicopter and it was sort of rolling backwards and forwards and yeah. you know the, the associated yeah, well, commentary with it. <laughs> yeah, there's many variations. I do remember actually in those days um, an army car was put on the leash and had a face painted like a dog face. And uh, this guy led the helicopter around like he was leading a dog and making it sit and stand and bow and do all sorts of things. So there are many variations on it, but unfortunately this one turned a bit sour. Oh, it makes good stories. <laughs> so that's all right. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's wind way back then. So as I said before we uh, hit record, I found a, a solo photo of you from back in 1967 in the in the Navy News. It's a, a scanned copy of the, the newspaper online, but... Was that your first introduction to flying, joining the Navy? Did you touch, you know, helicopters, aircraft before? No, I uh, was born and bred in Sydney um, and uh, joined the Navy in 66. But prior to that, in about 64, I'd started uh, to do my private license. I'd always sort of hung up on flying all my life. And uh, as soon as I was earning money out of school, I started taking uh, lessons at the Royal Air Club uh, of New South Wales at Bankstown. They had uh, the Haviland Chipmunk aircraft, which was sort of one step up from a Tiger Moth. A uh, uh, not all metal, but it was certainly not canvas and wood, and uh, a monoplane and a little gypsy major engine or something like that, tandem seating, and it had that that old pommy smell of uh, leather and oil and canvas. Uh, and that's the reason I actually went to the Royal Air Club because they had these types of aircraft. So. I did, uh, I did my private licence on those and uh, I went to Cherokee so I could carry more than uh, one person. Uh, then I joined the Navy in 1966 and um, about that time the Navy was getting uh, new fixed-wing aircraft for the modified uh, carrier Melbourne. They were A4 jet fighters and S2 anti-submarine piston engine trackers. Uh, and uh, also the Navy had committed uh, a number of pilots to the Vietnam War. So um, the Navy looked around for other places to train because the Air Force at the time couldn't. But they had commitments as well in Vietnam and aircraft types and stuff there. The Navy looked around and decided to send probably in the end, I'm not quite sure, maybe 25, 30 people uh, across to the States over a period of a couple of years. I happened to be in the first group that went. And uh, we flew four types, um, the T-34 Mentor, which was a beach baron that had been converted to have a, um, a tandem seat for a pilot instructor, uh, instructor and student. Um, retractable on it, kind of speed propeller, all these sorts of things. Then we moved on to the T-28 Trojan, which I don't really know or not, but it's, uh, it's once again a, a large all-metal tricycle undercarriage trainer. Uh, with a right cyclone, R1820, uh, 1800 horsepower uh, radial engine. Yeah, this, what are your memories of that? Like of, you see those fly past and the, the roar, you know. Uh, well, no, magnificent. Amazing. And considering we only had uh, minimum hours, um, we did uh, basic conversions from flying formation, flying, and the way the US Navy structured it, you sort of move from squadron to squadron to do different phases of training. And probably the best squadron I was on was the carrier qualification squadron. You arrived on the Monday and they um, gave a little bit of uh, an idea of how the deck worked and the mirror landing system, the rest of gear. And Tuesday and when, uh, Tuesday, Monday afternoon, Tuesday, I think you did a couple of jewel sorties with the instructor onto a runway uh, that was marked out like a carrier flight deck. Uh, then you... Um, 
I think it was Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, he got up bright and early and went to an old World War II airfield where they had uh, a bunch of these T-28s. He practised once again deck uh, landings to the to the uh, runway with your landing signals officer uh, giving you directions, more power, less power, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then on Friday morning, uh, he flew out with four students, his four students, uh, to uh, I think it was USS Lexington in the Gulf of Mexico. And he landed on, we orbited, and then when he'd seen himself up, we proceeded to carry a landing solo for the first time. Now, <laughs> I look back on that period uh, of the number of hours I actually had, and I'm thinking, did I really do that? Um, it's in my logbook, so I must have. It must have been a hell of a time, though. Like, I'm thinking, you know, young Aussie in the States, training on all these different, you know, machines, high-powered machines, and sort of, you know, having a, you know, it would have been a great time. And I can only assume, you know, the, the leave time being a, an Aussie in the US as well would have been a, a pretty good time. So, yeah, it sounds like... Yes, but uh, uh, this is a build-up to the um, to the, Viet, uh, the war in Vietnam. And uh, the US Navy was basically putting a... Um, uh, uh, a class of 30 pilots to be every week through Pensacola. So, and a lot of these guys were college graduates and we were midshipmen cadet pilots, uh, but they were uh, commissioned officers and they're on fairly good money. We're actually not on particularly good money over there, even at the allowances. So it was all a bit of a, a blur. And I often say, Hmm, I'd like to go back there uh, you know, 20 years later and do the same thing, knowing what I knew at the time. But yep. yeah, indeed, I'm not knocking it. it. Was it was a great time, and the flying was sort of intense. You just did it, and you moved, as I said, from one squadron to the next. We ended up flying. Um, well, you're probably familiar with Bell 47s for the Australian Army, but however, these were even pre them. They were still uh, they were called Bell TH13Ms, I think they were, and they were basically the forerunner to the Bell 47. They were Bell 47 under another name, but. Uh, very basic, very underpowered. And then we moved on to the H-34, which once again had this uh, 1,800-horsepower engine in it, uh, which used to start free. Um, it was not connected to a propeller like it was in the T-28. It was just in the nose of the aircraft. So, you know, you can imagine touching the throttle the wrong way with 1,800 horsepower before you engage the rotor. It could be quite exciting. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think we went there in August and came back in November uh, of uh, 67, August 66 to November 67. Excellent, yeah, and the, the photo I'll, I'll put up in the, in the show notes on the website with it. Yeah, I think that was November of that year, and yeah, you're standing in front of a, a Bell TH-13M is the, uh, That's right. is yep. the, the yep. caption for the photo. Okay, so you got back to Australia. Did you spend much time in Australia then before you went to Vietnam? No, we um, we came back, as I said, November 67. I think uh, probably started and finished an Iroquois um, UH-1B conversion with the Navy at Nara. And then uh, sometime, you know, maybe March or so, we uh, there was a group of us, uh, the only group. Most of the Navy pilots went to the 135th Salt Helicopter Company. Um, and they are a complete unit, pilots, observers, uh, mechanics, uh, cooks, uh, the whole issue. We were just uh, six or seven pilots who went and joined, uh, went to fire squadron first at Fairbairn, which later became the ADF helicopter school, um, and then on to nine squadron in Vietnam. So it was only, I think, uh, a lieutenant commander, a uh, couple of lieutenants and four or five sub-lieutenants 
for one shot only. We were staggered by a couple of months, so we didn't all go and one hit and come home one hit. So did uh, Navy, the, did Navy actually go across as an, as an individual Australian Navy unit, or it was all with the? Um, no, the no, we were seconded to RAF Nine Squadron. Whereas the guys that went across to the 135th Salt Helicopter Company, they were they trained up in Australia as a unit, um, half a dozen pilots, maybe a couple of observers, navigators, if you like, uh, some crewmen, uh, some mechanics, and even down to cooks to supplement the US system. So they were, and they were called the uh, Hilo Flight Vietnam, and there were four of those. Um, so you could probably say that they were a unit, but we weren't. We were just pilots only seconded to the RAF. Okay. Where'd you base out of uh, over there? The Vung Tower. We flew to Nui Dat every, every, um, uh, every day. We flew the flight of helicopters up to Nui Dat early in the morning. Uh, worked there with the army all day and flew back. Uh, sometimes we didn't get back, depending on what was going on with the army. Uh, but basically, and we had a uh, um, a uh, dust off unit uh, or dust off aircraft there overnight every night um, because the army didn't stop fighting just because the sun went down. Um, there were some interesting times there. Um, work our main work. Um, you'd have to say uh, probably the most exciting work was done with the SAS, inserting and extracting um, their patrols and there were a couple of exciting missions associated with that uh, and that was the time I really started to uh, respect the SAS because before I went there I had no idea what the SAS was but yeah, so can, you talk through, can, can you talk through one of those mission profiles? So that they would you would have flown out to their base. So they came to you, and you know what sort of flight path? Like can you no, they uh, what we did is so we detached to Nui Dad every day, and there'd be tasks on every day. A lot of uh, hash and trash, as they call it, resupply in the field. Um, then there would be battalion moves um, at times. There are a lot of company moves. Um, and a lot of uh, reconnaissance stuff like that, but the SAS was the major part of it. Now, when an SAS mission was on, uh, it'd be well known ahead because they would have gone and done a, an overflight recce of where they wanted to land and the area they wanted to work in for the next five or six days, however long they were supposed to be in the bush. Then we all got together in the alert hut and we had a combined uh, SAS and, um, and air crew brief um, the system actually was uh, to have a command and control aircraft which would uh, lead the mission from about 3,000 feet. Uh, then you'd have um, the insert helicopter and a spare, if this was a four- or five-man patrol. Uh, then you have two gunships. In my time there, the Air Force didn't have gunships and uh, a US gun team provided that. And what we would do is the aircraft, uh, the insert aircraft would take off um, line astern and stay low level, like skids in the trees, and you'd be conned by the uh, CNC machine. You knew where you were going. You'd seen, you know, recce pictures. So you knew, knew what the pad was going to look like. But he would con you, um, telling you that the pad's five miles ahead, turn left, you know, you're on a downwind now. You're mid-downwind, coming out to base, turn, turn, ba- turn base, the pad's at, you know, Two o'clock, one o'clock, and give you distances to run until you, you know, by that time you're probably a half mile out. You'd see the pad and you'd start decelerating, drop in. The theory was that one helicopter would drop out of this uh, line astern of four or five, and the SAS disembarked immediately, 
and you'd pop out of the hole in the trees and join this gaggle of helicopters somewhere. It didn't matter whether you end up between the two gunships or behind the whole lot. To anyone on the ground, uh, for all intents and purposes, five helicopters flew over that particular area and no one landed. Yep. At least that was the theory. Fair enough. Uh, when uh, you, then we we normally uh, we normally then well we always not normally we're always orbited about five or six miles away at a couple of thousand feet because uh, a number of occasions uh, they would get into trouble uh, the SAS uh, as they moved into the bush and then there was a need for uh, immediate extraction. Probably the mission that uh, sticks in my mind most was. Um, a mission I was actually flying co-pilot with another Navy guy, but we'd we'd gone back to Nui da- uh, sorry, gone back to um, Vung Tau, and it was about a 50-minute flight time. And just as we were getting there, we heard that this patrol, which was a 10-man patrol requiring two insert aircraft, uh, had gotten themselves into trouble. So much trouble, so they abandoned everything except their weapons, and were running through the bush. Luckily, we had one of the smartest C&Cs up there, his next fighter pilot, and he uh, arranged for um, flare ships, um, star shell guns, uh, even had a couple of uh, fast move mud movers uh, on call. Um, and we, uh, and uh, so it was all done, luckily, by him, uh, one of the better ones, as I said. We ended up landing in the pad, two aircraft. And uh, there was incoming green tracer and outgoing orange tracer, the green tracer being the, the Viet Cong green Chicom tracer. Uh, all pretty pretty exciting. As a co-pilot, you had nothing to do except wait for the captain to get shot, basically. Uh, he was flying the aircraft. The two gunners were letting loose with their M60s into the bush while SAS ran backwards to the aircraft, uh, shooting what they had. So, And the co-pilot sat there wondering, why all this was going on and what part was he going to play. Luckily, nothing happened. I don't even think there was any hits taken on the aircraft and we got the SAS out. But that was a night mission, so um, it was it was one that stands out in my mind. There are others, but that one stands out, mainly because I was the co-pilot and I had nothing to do throughout the process of this. So you could actually look and take something in. Well, I actually hung out the side with my 9mm pistol blazing into the blackness, hoping that I was keeping <laughs> someone's head down. Oh, there you go. Um, we better move on because I know there's, there's so many stories about Vietnam, but you've got such a, a, a you know, you've done so much in your career. But before we leave Vietnam, and if there's anything else you want to talk about, it, but you know, whenever you talk to the US guys, you know, they talk about being in these giant formations, moving, you know, doing air mobiles and things like that. With Nine Squadron, were you involved in big formations, or were you yes, normally sort of towards my yes, towards the end of my time there, they started to move uh, battalions at a time. Uh, and yes, we were in generally there were um, in a combat assault battalion move. There'd be sort of three flights of four aircraft, something like that. Um, but it was only towards the end of my time that the air force started to move big mobs of uh, diggers in one hit. I tell you, I've got to say that um, probably the most satisfactory, satisfying work up there, apart from pulling the SAS out of the bush when you knew they were in deep trouble was uh, pulling the diggers who were wounded out. And, uh, you know, from from hauling the guy out of some leech-infested hole in the jungle with, uh, you know, quite serious wounds. Uh, in fact, I remember a couple of issues where blood was flying down around my boots from some poor fellow in the back. But getting them then to, um, to the hospital pad, 
uh, at uh, Bung Tau. It was only about 15 minutes. And uh, I would suggest that um, you know, a lot of lives were saved purely because that uh, that ability to get the diggers out of the bush. And there were no medics on the helicopter. Okay. Uh, these guys were thrown in the back with wounds, battle dressed and shots of morphine, which you know didn't really stop the yelling. Um, and getting them into um, into the Australian hospital pad, which had the cute name of Vampire of all things, at the Australian hospital at, at uh, Bung Tau. So I'm quite sure uh, that uh, that we we managed to save or at least give a better quality of life to a lot of diggers. And that led on to when I started flying EMS, it had the same sense of satisfaction in the civilian world of doing that sort of work. Yeah, we'll talk about that later, but it's, yeah, everyone else I spoke to, you know, you, you train and you, you build up all these skills and then be able to put them into, into use in something like EMS, um, yeah, it must be very rewarding. Was was there any funny culture things between the Navy and the Air Force? Like, was there any, did you, do you remember any, any uh, was there any kind of one-upmanship or, or friendly competition between the, the Navy and the Air Force? Was there any times? Um, not really. A lot of the guys, the young pilots particularly, were known to us through um, not so much me, but the other guys are trained in Australia with the Air Force. Uh, a lot of the young pilot officers and sub lieutenants were all the same vintage and knew each other off pilot's course, whether you're on that guy's course or he was one course ahead of you or one course below, you know, they knew each other. So there wasn't too much rivalry, uh, not from that point of view. There might be a bit of chayacking in the bar, I suppose, but uh, no, we're all, yeah, you, you probably going to remember that uh, these guys were all sort of, um, you know, two years at the most, perhaps out of school. Yeah. And uh, now we're up here. I was one of the oldest at 22. A uh, very good friend of mine, um, Navy guy, was 19. Uh, okay. So, you know, we're, we're, we're quite uh, quite young chaps and, you know, this is an eye-opening world. But, um, yeah, my time there, uh, most of the young guys um, wanted to get on and do the job. But I don't remember anyone... Uh, who uh, didn't think that they should have been there. I do know towards the end of the uh, time there, say the late the 70s, 71, when there was 71 particularly when pulling out there, it was not such a, uh, from what I've understood, people up there, it wasn't such a fulfilling job because the whole of the army's winding down and you know, they were basically the patrol, patrol operation had wound right back to almost just self-preservation. So... It, uh, it wasn't perhaps the same sort of satisfaction that um, we got out in 68, 69. When you, when you got back, um, and again, you know, HMAS Melbourne, uh, and people aren't listening from Australia, that's pretty much, I don't know if that was our first or forever or only uh, carrier, uh, but that sort of yep. was well and truly gone by the time, you know, I sort of remember history or anything like that. Did you, did you serve and fly off Melbourne? Oh, yeah. Well, as I said, um, part of the reason for training the States was the Navy was buying uh, A-4s, uh, attack jets and trackers, which were quite a big aircraft. Melbourne had undergone in the uh, late 60s a uh, modification process to allow them to accept these aircraft. And I can't remember quite what it was, but I know that if a tracker landed too far left, sort of the limits to the right of the centre line, his wingtip was very, very close to the island. So... It was a very small carrier. It was only about 22,000 tonne, well and uh, fully loaded, and it was a light fleet carrier built by the POMs but never finished at the end of the war. And uh, I do know that the American exchange pilots who uh, who looked down 
from their A4 cockpit for the first view just couldn't believe that they were going to land on that. But um, no, the ship served us well. I, I did uh, immediately upon arriving back from Vietnam, I uh, did a Wessex conversion, uh, which is a, uh, a Pommy helicopter, in fact, licensed built from the H-34, which I'd flown in America. Uh, and it was anti-submarine. So I flew once again two pilots and observed an air crewman and had a sonar ball to drop in the water and listen for submarines. So I did that for uh, from 73 to 72. And I went on an instructor's course uh, in the UK at uh, Royal Air Force. I come home from that and uh, with a bit of flying training uh, instruction under my belt in now, I went to what was Fire Squadron and did a tour as a uh, ab initio helicopter pilot and instructor, yep. which once again I found uh, very satisfying, particularly in the military, because uh, as you would know, everyone wants to be there. If they've got to know the checks to start the aircraft tomorrow, they will know the checks to start the aircraft tomorrow. Oh, so, so it's definitely motivation yeah, there. M- that's right. They were motivated to be there. So the flying, uh, the instructional flying was, uh, was good. I went from there to... Uh, I do. I think I came back and went on to Sea Kings then, I think, yeah, and became an instructor on them. And the highlight of the Sea King time was probably uh, going on the Queen's 25th uh, Jubilee cruise across the Indian Ocean through the Suez Canal and to England and to take part in the celebration of the Queen's Silver Jubilee. At that time, I also did an upgrade to an A2 instructor rating. Come back to Australia, more time on Sea Kings, and then I went back, in fact, to um, to the Iroquois Squadron, and that's when the bursar operation started yeah. uh, in that time. And so let's let's dive into that because again, you know, having been you know only there for a short time, but done some of the the special ops flying uh, with the Blackhawks and things like that, like I had no idea that Navy was doing this sort of operation beforehand. So yeah, please no, you can no. talk, talk us through. Yeah, so this is Operation uh, Bursa, uh, and well, yeah, this is the first. The yeah, well, this was the first time that Australia realised that uh, there were installations in Australia, and we're talking about the Bass Strait oil rigs, that could come under some sort of terrorist attack. So uh, I think Hawke was the Prime Minister at the time. Anyway, word came down uh, to Navy, uh, because we had the Wessex, which had a big cabin that had a, an automatic pilot. It was meant to fly over the water at low level at night, which an Iroquois patently isn't meant to fly over the water at low level at night. So that came to us, uh, the squadron I was on, I was a senior pilot, and uh, the um, the boss of the squadron was also a friend of mine. I'd flown with him as an instructor, junior instructor with him in Canberra, so we knew each other well. The families were friends. So uh, we had this job, and uh, there was no buts, if or maybes. You will be ready for operations by the end of such and such, which is a very short period of time. So we had uh, the Wessex at that time already being used for the search and rescue aircraft on board Melbourne when it cruised. So we had to suddenly find more aircraft bought out of mothballs because they were coming out, they were replaced by Sea Kings. We had to find a lot of pilots, uh, captains with experience, and luckily we did have four or five captains who had time in Vietnam behind them, so that was good, and then a whole bunch of co-pilots who were suddenly given a Wessex conversion and uh, onto this real-time job. So how, how uh, many, we developed how many a whole machines bunch. did you have 
on you? Uh, I think we ended up uh, probably ended up with about eight and two on um, two on Melbourne, so about ten aircraft probably. Okay. The uh, aircrew they had to be we had to be able to move. I forget the actual time, but very quickly, twenty four hours, and so uh, it was a big impost on the squadron, and particularly from the maintenance side, not so much the aircrew. Uh, the old Wessex had a habit of uh, if you shut it down, it broke down. So um, the maintainers particularly were the ones that uh, were overworked to meet this commitment. But we did meet the commitment. We developed tactics which involved basically flying at the rig at about 50 feet and doing a, at an appropriate time a zoom climb up the top, a cyclic climb up the top to come to hover over the heli deck at about 30 feet. The SAS would then fast rope, which is basically a couple of inch diameter rope and leather gloves and they'd just uh, slide down the rope literally. We did find uh, from a couple of guys that returned from uh, the United Kingdom where they're on exchange in the commando seeking world that the tactics we developed had been developed by the Royal Navy uh, totally separate so it was apparently a tactic work. I was a bit concerned at the time the Wessex if you may remember was uh, bright well not bright blue but a royal blue with a white top and uh, it made quite a bit of noise Anyway, we were confirmed by the SAS who spent time on the rig that we weren't seen because the choppy sea normally running in the Bass Strait was blue and white and the ambient noise of the oil rig masked any sound of any helicopter arriving low level. So uh, it actually turned out to be uh, a good tactic and the aircraft was masked. We detached to his sail because the rigs are there, Rafi's sail, the rigs are, are just off his sail and... Um, uh, yeah, we worked up with the SAS and ended up we got to be quite good at it. There, We had to find a way to fly uh, at night in close formation and uh, and this was uh, difficult because there was no such thing as night vision goggles. There were starlight scopes, uh, tanky type um, uh, starlight scopes which were quite heavy and were great difficulty attached to the helmet. And I think you know, I could be right in saying that I was one of the first military pilots to fly on night or attempt flying night vision devices in Australia and myself and the boss and a couple of guys with a couple of Wessex up one night and uh, tried to fly and fly around now on uh, on these uh, starlight scope style night vision equipment but uh, even the cockpit lights of the lead aircraft would sort of blow the tube so it wasn't very successful. We found that uh, by affixing silooms to the tail of the aircraft and the uh, oleos we could get a perception of, uh, of uh, uh, an attitude to fly a formation on the aircraft. And we were flying six aircraft in formation yep. at night. I then approached um, one of the uh, tracker squadrons and I knew they dropped parachute flares. So using the quarter deck of a destroyer one night, we decided to um, make a low level approaches over water, which was no problem except we're in formation. Uh, and then at an appropriate time, get the tracker to drop parachute flares to illuminate the um, the ship uh, sort of as we're on final approach sort of thing. And this worked very well, but I think SO were not too keen on the idea of uh, magnesium flares being dropped over their oil platforms. Yeah, that was the write up I read. And even the practice, I think I got the impression from uh, the article I was reading that SO wasn't particularly you know, keen to have these uh, helicopters flying at their rigs and things like that. And and looking back, no, I mean, no. it doesn't it doesn't seem. And people who don't know where Bass Strait is, the bottom end of Australia, like it's such a remote place for uh, for terrorists to sort of hole up that kind of looking back, it seems 
like a lot of resources for maybe not much risk, but hard to tell. Knee-jerk reaction by the government at the time. Yeah, it it really was. Uh, It was good. Don't get it wrong. It was good fun, and it was a learning experience. And I think that that sort of learning experience carried over, I wasn't there, but for the first Gulf War in 91, whenever it was, Operation Desert Storm, uh, the Navy had to get squirrels up and running with uh, mag uh, 30, I think, for the machine guns and equipped with a whole bunch of stuff to go over to the Gulf uh, on the back of uh, a dis- uh, the back of uh, their capable ships to take part in Desert Storm. So the idea of uh, being given a job and given a deadline to do it, that was learnt from Bursa and carried on to future operations. So it was valuable training, no doubt about it, and I'm glad we did it. But to say, as you just said, it certainly was a, a major expensive operation for a minimum risk. But the level of, of complexity of those missions, and this is why I was just amazed, I'd, I never heard of it before, but you know, we're talking a Wessex, which you might want to talk about what sort of navigation equipment it had, but um, I think you were either 100 yeah, feet or 50 none. feet. Yeah, so, so no none. nav gear. Um, 50 feet or 100 no navigation feet off, equipment. Yeah, you know, 50 feet, 100 feet off the uh, deck over the ocean at night, running in at a um, in formation with no night vision goggles, running in on a, a uh, an oil rig. And then my understanding is, you know, two, two machines would split off with snipers and then the uh, last That one... came a little bit after my time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that, 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 those sniper stuff was brought in after I'd left the squadron. I can only talk to what happened to us. We had no snipers. It was just coming in. Just as I left squadron, they started to talk about that. They were also starting to talk about um, night suns for illumination, stuff like that. But when we started, we had nothing of that. The Wessex was chosen because it was designed to fly at low-level IMC, uh, you know, where you can't see anything, over the water at night. It was designed for that. So it had a four-axis autopilot. And it had that back in 1963 when the Navy first got them. In other words, the collective was uh, was in the autopilot system. Now, I've flown uh, autopiloted civilian helicopters, and the, the collective, the ones I've flown, there's two types, is not included in the autopilot. So it's a three-axis, pitch, roll, and yaw. The Wessex had four-axis, pitch, roll, yaw, and the collective. It would descend over the water to a hover on its own albeit a bit rough and they had to follow it up and the co-pilot had to really think about what he was doing. But it was basically uh, designed to fly from 60 knots, 125 feet, down to a Doppler hover at um, 35 feet, if I remember rightly. So for its time, like the early 60s, it was a very advanced machine. Okay, and so that obviously got replaced, so the Sea Kings uh, came in. Uh, Did you stick around much then or had you moved on from then? No, well, I moved. Um, I moved from uh, from senior pilot of seventy three, which was the Wessex Iroquois Kaya Squadron doing Bursa. I moved on to Sea Kings, if I remember rightly. No, I didn't. Other way around. I went from Sea Kings back to Wessex back to uh, Wessex and Iroquois and Kaya's. After that, I had uh, I had my my two years. Uh, in Navy office, um, doing a desk job, directly related, I was the helicopter desk person. So I had my two years there. And at the end of that time, uh, the Navy had actually, Hawkey or someone had just canned the carrier and the fixed wing were going. I was actually slotted to be the commanding officer of the Seeking Squadron. 
and I might not remember, but uh, this is 1982 when the uh, Poms had their little uh, fight down in the southern uh, Atlantic with the Argies. And uh, just before that was happening, we were going to get HMS Invincible, which was one of these through-deck cruisers, uh, a, a, a carrier by any other name, except it didn't have the Caterpillar Arrested Gear on. But the Australian Navy was going to get it. Then the um, the uh, Faultless War started, and Fraser, I think it was, said, look, you can keep the carrier to help you fight the war. And that ended Navy carrier flying. From there on, there was no just well. There was justification within the Navy, but there was no justification for governments to spend the money on bringing back uh, a proper full-blown carrier uh, with uh, rest of gear and catapults and stuff like that and fixed wing. Yep. So um, I said to the Post at the time, I said, look, I know you've got me slotted to be CO of 817, but I think that it's uh, not going to be a particularly bright place and I've only got a couple of years to run from a 20. I'll see if you can get me back to the fire squadron as an instructor again. Well, after a bit of argy-bargy, that happened. And I went from the um, from the Navy office job to fire squadron at Canberra. Uh, another couple of years of instructing. And uh, in that time, we moved. The, the Air Force was still instructing on UH-1Bs. Uh, but they'd, uh, as part of my job in Navy office, actually, was to finalise the selection of the squirrel to replace the UH-1B as a trainer. And uh, I knew that uh, being at Fire Squadron at the time, I'd get four or five hundred hours in squirrels, and squirrels are being extensively used in the civilian world. So I thought, well, this will set myself up for having a, some attraction in my logbook for uh, for work in the civilian world. So in '86, um, I left the Navy, having spent 20 years in, and two or three postings, or three postings with the Air Force, to fly in the civilian world. Okay, so part two of this interview will be coming up in the next episode, so do look out for that. We start into Ken's post-Navy career in the EMS world, and he shares some of the most important things he thinks that helicopter aircrew need to keep in mind. If you haven't subscribed to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from, then make sure you do that. It's the easiest way to have the shows pushed out to your phone in many cases. There are also some photos of Ken on the blog post, including one of him shutting down on a major Sydney street in an Augusta 109 with a police car next to him, while the traffic starts to back up well behind. While you're on the website over at rotarywingshow.com, grab a copy of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners if you don't have a copy already. That will also put you on the email announcement list for upcoming episodes or anything else that we have going on. Now, I mentioned at the opening that a few of you had contacted me and the suggestion you had was to set up a patreon.com account. If you haven't heard of Patreon before, it is an online platform in some ways you know, similar to Kickstarter where people can support and fund artists or shows or bands to help them create more of whatever it is that they do. It was well over a year now that someone first suggested it, but I'd been resistant to doing it for a couple of reasons. So A, this is a bit of a hobby, and B, at the time I was self-sponsoring with trainingmorepilots.com, which was going to be, and might still be in the future, a marketing agency focused on serving flight schools. So the reason for this is I do a lot of online marketing and consulting outside of flying. So while I've started writing a fair chunk of a book on how to market a flight school online, I've not had the time to put into that and setting up a marketing agency and time to set up interviews, especially with overseas guests and juggling time zones here in Australia has been hard to carve out, hence the slow tempo of shows coming out recently. 
Long story short, I've revisited the Patreon idea and set up a supporters page for the show. So basically the go is that if you get value from the episodes and if we did bump into each other in the street, you'd be okay to buy me a coffee, then you might want to help offset the production cost of the show through Patreon. More than that though, and on the lighter side, if I can show my wife that people are, are digging it and that I can uh, justify the time to crank out more of these episodes for you. You can find the support page at patreon.com forward slash rotarywingshow or rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. That's it for this episode. The next one should be following pretty closely behind to finish off Ken's interview. Keep your recommendations for guests coming in. If you're on iTunes and can take 30 seconds to leave a review, you would be awesome. Fly safe.